ethics is knowing the difference between what you have a right to do and what is right to do. Potter Stewart. You're listening to Podnuts Pro, your podcast for IT business support. Tips to help you run your business better, smarter, and faster. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Podnuts Pro. This is the live show that we do most Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. This is the first Wednesday back since I have attended the ASCII Success Summit in Orlando last week. Be sure to head over to podnutspro.com and you can get a little bit of snippets, some quick interviews that I did with vendors and other ASCII members on site there. We talked about the conference. We talked about hanging out at Disney and stuff like that. So uh, head over that and you'll see a couple of those episodes. And let's see here. All right. So Podnuts Pro is your podcast for IT business support, where we share product stories and tips, all in an effort to help you run your business better, smarter, and faster. Our show is presented to you by NetAlly, your handheld networking tools. You've heard me talk about them before. They are absolutely fantastic in helping you in the first line of defense when you're trying to troubleshoot or even discover uh, networking problems and issues and Wi-Fi stuff. So netally.com and our live stream sponsor, Computers Done Right. Our good friend John is sponsoring this live show. And uh, computersdoneright.com is uh, where you can go to find out how to get support and other website stuff done. So those are our show sponsors. If you would like to contribute to the show, you can head over to podnutspro.com. There is a support page where you can become a patron and provide a little monthly coffee donation. You can sign up to be one of the other sponsors that are available there and help me support the show. This is coming out of my pocket. And I'm trying not to have the business do it, but if you guys can help and you like the content, that would be great. Our guest this evening, you know him, you love him, Mr. Bradley Gross, the law offices of Bradley Gross. He is the MSA expert in our field, and I'm going to go ahead and bring him on right now. If I can control the thing right there, Bradley. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing? I am doing good. And your your lighting looks fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. If you knew how many different lights and and how long it took to configure all this, you'd be very impressed. Uh, impressed. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So we are broadcasting both from the great state of Florida. I am in the city of Fort Lauderdale. You are just a tad bit south. I won't say. Southwest. Southwest. Weston. Uh-huh. And uh, how was... uh, how was your weather today? Ours was pretty good. It was great. I mean, this is the time of year to be in Florida. Yes. Right? This is uh, this is when you want to be here. Yep. Not uh, so hot, not so humid. Exactly. Exactly right. And when the uh, uh, there are a couple of times when you actually can open the doors and the windows and turn off the air conditioning for a few minutes. So <laughs> this is uh, this is ideal. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. So I mentioned in the opening that uh, I was at the ASCII Success Summit in Orlando. And uh, you were not there this year. You you have attended in the past, and rumor has it that you will be attending next year. That is the that is the rumor. That is it's a very strong rumor. <laughs> a yes. Strong rumor. Okay. Very strong rumor. Um, and I don't know if they're going to be doing all nine shows. Will you attend all nine or just a fraction? If the rumors are correct, I will be at all nine shows. Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. Even the one in Canada. Even the one in Canada, will they be allowing us in by that? Well, they should be allowing us in. I hope so. I sure. The only time I've ever been stopped uh, by any uh, border patrol and so on was actually trying to enter Canada about five years ago. Oh, there were four, six years ago. Other than that, I've never had a problem. So Canada is a problem for me. I hope it won't. Is is there a story that goes with that? (laughs) I don't know. They just didn't. They didn't. They didn't. um, 
I don't know, maybe I looked at them funny or so. They they called me in the back room. They asked me about 10 questions about what I was doing and a conference I was speaking at, whatever it was. And then they said, okay, you're free to go. That was it. So interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Very good. So I'm a, I'm a very dangerous person. <laughs> they need to worry about me. All right. I guess. So I'm trying to close out this window here so I can get to our topical screen because we have mm-hmm. – what I think will be a very interesting topic coming up. We originally were going to talk about ransomware and whether or not you should put clauses in your managed service agreement mm-hmm. about ransomware. I heard um, a podcast earlier and I've heard some other MSPs talking about trying to put a, put, find a way to put language in the contract that says, hey, if you get ransomware, it's not really our fault. It's it's our vendor's fault. Um, this also came on the heels of some of our tools uh, getting hacked and mm-hmm. <clears throat> MSPs trying to figure out, okay, what can we do as an MSP to protect ourselves and not be you know, sued or held liable by our customers when it's somebody else's tools? Sure, sure. So, you know, the issue of should we put specifically a, a disclaimer for ransomware in our agreements – I mean, it's a great issue. It's a good question. Uh, but I think that it's a bit parochial in its view, meaning that today it's ransomware. Uh, a few years ago, it wasn't necessarily ransomware. It was something else. Before that, it was something else. And tomorrow, it'll be something entirely different. And I think that the common denominator of all of this is the fact that MSPs, for the most part, are reselling services, right? They're reselling a service or a product from someone else, an upstream provider, over whom they have no managerial control. They have no administrative control. They certainly don't have any product control. So I think that the idea of disclaiming ransomware can be brought up even in a more broad way and simply say that the services, as an MSP, the services that we offer are always going to be limited by the functions and the features of whatever solution we are offering you. It could be ransom, right? It could be a malware. It could be a security stack. I get it. It could be an RMM. It could be a dark web, uh, uh, sec- uh, dark web scan. It could be pen testing. It could be, it could be a whole lot of things. It could be right? a failed backup. So it could be backup. Exactly. So I think that by simply saying, well, we're going to put a disclaimer for ransomware in, it's going to give people a little bit, a little bit of a false sense of security. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I think that MSP should take it further. And when when I draft contracts, I do. I make it very clear that 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 any service that we provide that's provided by a third-party vendor, okay, is the responsibility of that vendor. And while we can facilitate that service for you, and we might even be able to help you work around a problem that you have with that service, at the end of the day, you can't hold us responsible or or ask us to provide you more then we are getting from them or they are giving directly to you. So I think it's correct to say, well, ransomware could be an illustrative example, but it's not the exhaustive example. There are a lot of different services. Uh, like you just said, could be backup and disaster recovery, right? Has nothing to do with ransomware, but probably just as important and probably more ubiquitous than, than, uh, uh, than, than ransomware uh, attacks. Right. So, well, it's always, it's always, Something where the customer believes that you are doing something for them, regardless of what it is. And they always say, well, I thought you were taking care of that. You're my guy. I thought you were protecting us. No doubt. And I think that that goes to managing expectations. And I'll tell you, and this is sort of my mantra. Well, I have a few mantras, but this is one of them, that um, the most bitter disputes that MSPs have with their customers really never relates to the legal language, the indemnification or the limitation of liabilities and so forth. No, the most bitter disputes relate to disappointed expectations, mismanaged expectations. And certainly if you are saying things like, we're going to provide you the best security solution so you could sleep 100% soundly at night. Well, you're nuts, okay? Because one, nothing is 100%. Two, in truth, you're not actually providing the service someone else is, right? But if you just leave it at that, and then the client signs off on that, well, you're going to have a lot of problems should things go awry. So 
managing expectations. Ransomware is certainly an important one and, and, uh, you know, one of the top three or four, but it's not the only one. All right. So we always, we always have those discussions and we could get into that all night long, but I want to go to another topic. And I had, again, come across the document that I thought, hmm, this sounds interesting. And there's a document put out by the organization CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is a division of the Department of Homeland Security, which is all part of the National Risk Management Center. So think of all the hands that went into that. There is a it's documentation. An interesting agency. It's an interesting agency. Yeah. And I would invite people to take a look at that because that is um, one of the few federal agencies that's sort of a public-private uh, um, uh, merger, if you will. They they are obviously a federal agency, but their goals are not just federal agency or introspective. They are uh, um private sector right uh, 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 they have private sector considerations too and they work with the private sector not only to enhance the security and integrity of the government systems but to enhance the security and integrity of public systems as well so it's one of those public private combinations that uh, that if you're going to say where's my tax dollars going that's the kind of agency you want them going to right and you know, on the surface, it looks great because mm-hmm. everybody right now is like, we need better security. And, right. you know, even our president has, you know, put out an executive order that we are going to strengthen the security of our nation. Mm-hmm. Now, what I find funny is that this document is called the risk considerations for managed service provider customers. Right. So this is a document that actually goes out to businesses about the risk considerations of using us. And so on the surface, like I said, probably a great document for businesses. But as you dig a little deeper, this thing called the shared responsibility model, I think is really going to drive some of us nuts. So I thought, (laughs) let me get Brad on. Let me start asking some questions. And what does this really mean for us? Well, so the shared responsibility model is, uh, it's not a new concept. The shared responsibility model has been used in lots of other industries, especially in um, digital production and media, where parties have to collaborate and work toward a common goal to create something beautiful, something amazing, right? Um, different people are, are contributing. And the idea is that we have a responsibility of doing this. You have the responsibility of doing that. And as long as we each fulfill our responsibilities, the end goals should be met. The milestone should be fulfilled. However, if someone fails on their responsibilities, well, it divests, it, it eliminates the need for the other side to meet its goals, right? So it's sort of a, it's a seesaw, right? The seesaw works as long as when I'm up in the air, you push off the ground. And when I'm on the ground and I push, you know, you go... But if all of a sudden you're up in the air and I don't push and I stay on the ground, well, it doesn't work, right? So this shared responsibility is very much like a seesaw. And one of the companies that's implementing it uh, currently is is Amazon. You could, um, if you Google it, Amazon and shared responsibility, it'll take you to, uh, um, it'll take you to a a webpage where it'll tell you all about what it expects customers to do, what it can do, Amazon can do, and so forth. Um, And I think now, in light of the fact that MSPs are starting to realize that they are not the great saviors, they can't walk in and save a company from itself, no matter how much they might say they can. Um, uh, With all with that realization, coupled with the fact that companies are getting smarter and asking more of the MSPs. It is not surprising to me now that the shared responsibility is being thrown out there as maybe this is the paradigm you guys should be following, right? MSP takes care of certain things. Customer has to take care of certain things, right? We can't save you from yourself at all times. So it's not surprising that this is coming up. All right. So I know that there were a few things that stuck out to me as something we should pay attention to. So let me go ahead and ask you you know, from an overview perspective, was there anything that really jumped out at you at this document that 
really should make us stop and think about what we're doing? Well, I think so. And, and, and let me tell you why. This document, as you said, is meant to be given to not MSPs, but MSPs customers. But as a service provider, if you really want to do well and you want to succeed and you want to stand out from the other providers that are your competitors, it behooves you to know what your customers want, right? To think like them, to anticipate what their questions are going to be. Uh, very similar to, look, in my practice, right, I represent service providers, OEMs and VARs and so forth. And one of the great benefits that I have is I'm a programmer. I used to be a computer hacker. I know your technology. I know the, the resources you knew. You know, I know the vendors that you're using and the solution stacks that you're offering. So I understand and can anticipate problems. Well, now let's take that and move it to the MSP side. MSPs would be well-counseled to know what their customers are thinking. What are their customers thinking? Look at the document, right? Now, the document says, for example, uh, one of the bullet points that um, CISA recommends uh, to, uh, to MSP customers is, and I have it on my screen here, um, specific performance-related service level agreements, including a clear delineation of operational or operational services and security services. right. You know, a, a customer is going to look and say, yeah, there should be service levels and a clear delineation of what I'm getting and exactly what's being offered and so forth. So knowing that customers are reading that, it behooves MSPs to turn around and say, how do our documents clearly delineate what operational aspects we are providing, what security services we're providing, what anything that we're providing? Do we clearly delineate? Do we say, we're going to give you a backup and disaster security solution. It's going to be great. We're going to back up your stuff, and then you can recover it when you need it. Is that a clear delineation? No. Right? Does that provide any sort of service level? No. So I think that that bullet point reminds MSPs that they need to think about service levels and think about delineating what you're going to do and what you're not doing. And if you read your statements of work, your proposals, your quotes, whatever you're using, and it kind of seems ambiguous, leaves questions, right? Then maybe you haven't clearly delineated your services like the government is recommending the customer's demand. But so is that one point? Right. But isn't it something that we've always done where we kind of keep it vague so that if we want to change services, Right. You know, for instance, let me just go down a couple of more bullet points where it mm -hmm. says that, you know, a software bill of materials um, should be provided that the MSP will use to provide its services. That means that I need to tell my customer, here's the tools I'm using. Here's what the tools do. But what if I want to keep that a little hidden or as part of my secret sauce so that if I'm not happy with the backup – I can change it, or if I'm not happy with the antivirus, I can change it. You know, this makes it to where if I make that change, I will have to let the customer know, hey, we're changing providers. Right. Well, I'll tell you, you know, again, these kinds of lists are written in a way that you try to cover as much ground as possible at the risk of going perhaps overboard. And they do go overboard in certain areas. We could talk about that in a few minutes. Um, but ultimately, you know, the question of how specific do you have to get in a quote or a statement of work? I mean, they call it a software bill of materials. Okay, bill of materials, so government sounding, right? <laughs> so reeks of government, the software bill of materials. Yep. All right. Um, it's the software Magna Carta, I think, is what you need. Um, how specific do you have to get? My answer to that has actually evolved over the years. Okay. Had we been talking about this issue five, six years ago, I would have said there's no reason to mention a uh, actual software vendor. Uh, I think that you should give yourself enough leeway to describe the service you're providing. And uh, that obviously gives you leeway to change providers because you haven't locked yourself into one vendor. All right. Over the years, Given the number of vendors that are out there, the different security solutions, uh, security uh, service solutions that are offered and so on, I've evolved to a different way, slightly different way of thinking. I'm now in the camp of, I think that you can often announce who your vendors are, who the vendors you're using are, 
uh, because ultimately the vendor is not going to be your secret sauce. The, the secret sauce is your service, your contact with that, the, the reliability that you have. And, you know, when they call, are you going to answer the phone if they have a question about the service? That's the secret sauce because the, the RMM solution that you're providing is the same RMM solution that, you know, a thousand other people have provided the same solution. So what I now think is that it's not a bad thing to reveal vendors and even recommend that or offer the opportunity for your customers to explore those vendors. It will do a few things. One, it will help manage their expectations because the vendors will say what their services are. Uh, two, it will show your clients that you're using top shelf vendors, right? That you're using uh, uh, sources and, and, and solutions that are top shelf, that are, are, are very, are well known. Doesn't get much better than that. So should something happen, you don't immediately have to start defending what you're doing and where these the services are coming from. It's well known. You know, we're bringing you uh, a solution from, you know, I could throw out a whole bunch of vendors out there. We're trying to be vendor agnostic here, I guess. But I, I don't care. Idea, say who, say whoever you want. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying, look, you could say, uh, let's, let's, um, talk here, about, you know, here's what I'll tell you. So I used to tell people, mm-hmm. um, that, I went with Datto for backup services. Okay. And Great. the reason was because Datto provided a premier backup service with the hardware, with the cloud service, with the 24-7 right. support. And right. if there was a catastrophe, they would have a truck roll to your area and provide equipment if needed. That was something that's – no, not every customer, but some customers when they asked, why are we paying such a high price? Yeah, That's why. If you want – you know, to go low shelf, well, we can go low shelf, but you're not going to get all these things. Right. And it might not even be worth going low shelf, right? But, I, you know, I, I would take the most recent examples. Now, let's say within the past two years, um, the most recent examples of where Kaseya had an issue, mm-hmm. right, over the, over the summer. Okay. Before everyone comes down on Kaseya, let's go back a year, year and a half. ConnectWise had the, almost the identical issue, right? Yeah. To, Two of the top shelf vendors in this space, top shelf, right? They both had similar issues. And by the way, between those bookends, we had solar, solar winds, winds. Yeah. screwed up everything, right? And so the idea is that if you're talking about your vendors, you could say, look, yes, Kaseya had this issue, but don't abandon Kaseya so quickly because ConnectWise had that issue and vice versa. ConnectWise could say, don't abandon us if we have an issue. Everybody has these issues. We're top shelf people. We will resolve it like we did, like we will, right? So I'm not against necessarily revealing vendors. What I do think, okay, is that in your agreement, you must reserve the right to be able to change vendors without the customer's permission, without the customer's uh, uh, notification, as long as the service doesn't degrade the, uh, the level of services you're providing. Right. Because at the end of the day, one vendor might suddenly offer a better solution or might offer this exact same solution, but a few dollars cheaper. And on a volume basis, that's a significant amount. Right. So you shouldn't be locked into a vendor by revealing that vendor to your customers. Your MSA should say, look, if we reveal we're going to give you third party services, we're going to give them to you. We might not identify them as such, but even if we don't identify them, you have to understand your 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 uh, your access and the features and functions that you get are limited to whatever they give you. By the way, we can change those people. We could change those solutions whenever we want. We don't have to give you notice of that. But here's our promise. If we do change it, the service will stay the same or be better. Now you can reveal vendors, you can change vendors, and you're in good shape. Yep. Yeah. Before we get too far along, I want to throw up a question here from the chat. Chris asked a question, won't a smart customer see what's on their PC? And the short answer is yes. I've had that happen where you mentioned the SolarWinds attack and somebody did actually call me and say, hey, should I be worried? And I was able to say, well, in this particular case, it was the Orion incident. So I could say, no, we're, you know, separated from them. That's an enterprise thing. This is so I was able to explain that to them and they were like, they were okay. But you're right. There are customers who, and in shadow IT, I guess is a nice phrase, that they will go and dig to see what you're using. Of course. There are some power users out there, right? The power users, the ones that know just enough to ask enough questions that drive you nuts. But, 
you know, I agree with Chris. Won't a, a smart customer see what's on their PC? I guess a real good smart power user who's inquisitive enough, inquisitive enough will. And yet another reason why you may want to disclose it because they may find out anyway. Yeah. And certainly, certainly if they ask the MSB, you're not going to hide it, right? You're not going to say this is a proprietary service. We don't disclose that. You'll tell your customer, right? As part of the relationship. So um, I see no reason to hide the vendors as long as you can modify them and change them as needed. So I have another question I wrote up. And before we move on, I just wanted to ask. So there are lots of times that there are discussions in all the groups about not just the vendors, but some of them try to lock in three-year agreements Yeah. or Microsoft now changing their Microsoft 365 op- option to want us to push the one-year price. Right. But if the customer leaves, we're still stuck with the bill and that sort of stuff. It. So, mm-hmm. I mean, those are the types of things where I don't want to be stuck in a contract and then have to tell the customer, well, you can't leave because we're in a contract because the shared responsibility model for me means we're going to be in this together. So if you want to help me choose the vendors we use, then you have to walk with me throughout the whole process. So I'll tell you, you know, that's interesting that the concept of a shared responsibility is helping us choose the vendors that we're going to use. Um, you know, my thought would be, I'm not going to give my customers the um, the power, let's say, to choose their vendors. I think that doing that might become a bit of a moving target, right? Because every customer might have different needs and select different solutions, and you're going to start running around instead of trying to offer uh, packages of, of tried and true solutions that work together and interrelate and so on. So, but but I'll tell you that, you know, as far as these long-term agreements, I don't like locking my customers into one-year deals, three-year deals, and so on. It's a problem. It's a real problem. In fact, I think that the way Microsoft has done things, they, sent, they seem to keep repeat. they keep repeating that this is working better for managed service providers. This is somehow better for the industry. To me, it puts the MSP industry in a very precarious position because now they can no longer offer month-to-month or short-term deals because they themselves are locked in. So now MSPs are going to be well-advised to make sure that they have at least minimum terms so that they cover their financial nut uh, and, and go with it, right? I mean, that's unfortunate. You know, the days of the month-to-month, and just give us 30 days' notice and you're out. I think those days are coming to an end unless there's a dramatic change in pricing in the industry. Right. The, the battle used to be that they would see a price on the web, you know, for instance, you know, Office 365, they would see a $4 a month price, you know, mm-hmm. we're charging six to make money, but they don't see the fine print that says, no, you get that $4 if you pay in advance for a full year. Right. Pay in advance. For, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so because they don't read the fine print. Right. And then, of course, when they try to get out, they realize the true cost of the contract for sure. Okay. All right. So that was the thought that came into my mind. Now, the next question I wanted to ask you about is a few more bullet points below. And for those of you that pull up the document, it's a free document. It's about nine pages. We're on page four uh, talking about what should an MSP provide to an organization in advance of a contract award. Well, one of the bullet points it says at the bottom is the ability for the customer organization to examine the systems that directly and indirectly support the contracted service on demand by the customer organization. Yeah. So this is one of those, yeah, this is one (laughs) of those, uh, agreed. I I saw that too. Remember a few minutes ago, I said that there's certain parts of this that they, they sweep with a broad brush and they probably unintentionally include things that they shouldn't. That's one. Okay. Okay. If understanding the managed service industry, understanding uh, uh, how these solutions are delivered, um, that is an almost impossible, from what I can see, an impossible goal. Uh, You are not certainly going to invite customers into your own house so that they can, uh, your own house, your own uh, complex, so they can start looking into your security systems. To me, that's security breach in and of itself. 
Certainly, Amazon is not doing that, right? Amazon Web, Azure, these, they're not doing it. Uh, any of the vendors that you just named, right? Data, uh, Cronus, name them, Kaseya, Continuum, Barricade, any of them, they're not inviting people in. So giving people the false sense that, oh, if you have an issue, come on in. It's like a tour. You could just take a tour of our facility. That's not going to happen. Um, so I think that that's one of those bullet points that probably went a little bit too far. Uh, doesn't, of course, undermine the entire document, but that's one that I wouldn't agree with. All right, good. I, yeah. I'm not crazy. <laughs> no. no, I read that one. I'm thinking, really? They're going to tour the facility? Why don't you call uh, Jeff Bezos uh, and say, I'd like to tour Amazon and yeah. see, see how far you get. Yeah, show me these you drones. A, you have a better chance of going to space on his rocket than, <laughs> yeah. than touring his, his security facility. Right. So, yeah. All right, so... All of this kind of points to a point in the document where, you know, customers obviously are trying to balance the security of their company with the cost. And, you know, I mentioned customers being able to go out and see prices on certain websites. Um, They may also get pricing from another MSP who is obviously open to sharing. And the customers that always say, oh, were you doing an RMM for – you know, this much an endpoint. Well, I know this tool can do it for a dollar less an endpoint. How does this document, I guess, gel with, with that concept? Well, you know, this document, the way I read it, it doesn't necessarily say that you're, that you should be looking for the lowest, um, you know, the lowest dollar and then, and jump with it. I'm not saying you said that, but I'm saying the way I read it, it doesn't say that. What it does say is that companies need to do a cost benefit analysis uh, not only to figure out what the budget is, what they can spend on this, given that what they have to secure, right? Given what risks they have uh, uh, internally, but it also uh, uh, talks about the fact that in some cases it might be worth it for the company to not outsource it, to not bring in an MSP, right? There might be a tactical decision that it's made based on finances to say, we're going to keep this in-house, but we're going to outsource to an MSP the rest of it. So there's a lot of financial balancing that's built into this document. I would say that uh, from an MSP perspective, never, ever, ever, ever uh, engage in a race to the bottom. Uh, I, I would think that, you know, if somebody is offering a few dollars less than you to keep lowering your price, that's a moving target. And I know this is something that you've you've talked about a lot, Marvin. I know you agree with it. You, you never engage in a race to the bottom. No. Uh, if they can't, you know, I was I was listening to um, I was just at the uh, uh, event in, in Las Vegas talking with Gary Pika and his crew. And he had a speaker on whose name I wish I knew, uh, but he said something to the effect of, God, I hope I don't mess this up, but it was something to the effect of, if a customer understands value, they'll never question the price. Okay. Something to that effect. Okay. I might've missed a word in that, but that's the gist of it, right? If, if you're providing value, they won't question the price. If they question the price, I guess the corollary to that, if they question it, then maybe you're not providing the value you thought, or maybe you're not explaining it carefully enough, right? So as far as pricing is concerned, I would never be concerned with, oh, are we, you know, we're offering for $6, someone else is offering it for 4 Because if you're providing value for that $6 above and beyond just the solution, they'll never question it. I do. I believe that. And that is something that I have preached to my customers is that I will never be the cheapest. I know you have. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, you know, we're we're sort of saying it tongue in cheek, but it's the truth. You're yeah. you're not. I get you're not the cheapest, but you, you give value, and that's what it's about, right? That's yep. what it's about. All right. So let us try to get to a couple of other things. So sure. um, again, folks, this document is quite long, but I want to skip back towards page eight because there is where they provide an appendix A which is basically the MSP risk considerations checklist. And it literally is a checklist uh, for businesses to do and consider when they're um, engaging uh, their agreement with the MSP. And the very first thing under considerations for strategic decisions makers is establish a supply chain risk council that includes executives 
from across the organization and represents all relevant business units and organizational functions. Mm. I'll be honest, most of my clients are small business. Those executives, CEOs don't want to be a part of those meetings. Yeah. Until something goes wrong and then they'll regret that they weren't right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they'll say, why didn't anyone include me in this? Um, You know, this is the type of advice that I have been giving for God knows how long, especially with regard to um, incident response plans and so forth. When you're trying to come up with strategic decisions and, and figure out plans and guidelines about how you're going to move forward as a company to say that the CEO will make that decision is ridiculous to say, well, only C-level people, right? CEO, CFO, COO, only they make the decision. That's also ridiculous because the, the IT uh, department, the head of the IT, there's far more than the CEO does about where data is coming from, where it's being stored, how it's being stored, right? Of course, the CEO knows far more than the IT director about budgets, financing, what the company can afford to do, risk benefit analysis, and so forth. So, I think that even for small companies that, uh, like you said, that might not have different departments and so forth, the, the message is clear. Involve a lot of different people from a lot of different disciplines in your company. Okay, Even if it's two or three people, if they all have different disciplines and different ways of looking at things, then that should be who's making the decision. You know, someone once told me that uh, if there are three people to a conversation and everyone agrees, then you have two people too many, right? So uh, the same with this. If you have three people, you can have a a council that's two or three people. If they come from different disciplines and have different ideas, you're doing it right. If everybody just says, whatever you say, boss, then you're you're not doing it right. And that's exactly what uh, uh, CISA is trying to say. Hmm. Fun, fun, fun. Now, yeah. I do I do like the idea of getting more people to the table mm. because, as you mentioned, there are times, you know, I think you and I have had these discussions where I'm dealing with, you know, the HR person or the office manager who doesn't want to take stuff, you know, to the boss. And, you know, I can approve that or I won't approve that. I'm, sometimes I'm thinking, okay – this is important. Don't you think the boss should see this? And I think that this type of uh, shared responsibility document is going to put that in their face and say, look, they need to be involved. For sure. So. For sure. And it gives the people who are, let's say, scared, a little uh, uh, intimidated to go to the boss. It gives them uh, – Ammunition, right? It gives them support because here's the government stepping in a, pro- a public-private uh, uh, relationship from the government saying, "Go to the boss, you know, involve the boss, and vice versa." Right? Saying to the boss, "Involve the HR department, involve the IT department, involve the people who are out and get involve the head of sales." For God's sakes, that person knows what salespeople are doing, what they're offering, where they're getting their information from, and so forth. Involve that person too. They all have different perspectives. They should all be at the table. There should be ultimately one decision maker, but they need to be at the table to give their opinions. All right. So I know I could go down and point to a couple of other of these things, but is there any other of these that kind of stuck out at you um, that we should, you know, clarify? Well, you know, I think that you're right. This, this is a fairly long list. Um, I think that again, in that same page, page eight, where it says considerations for operators, and it says request the following from an MSP before signing a contract, right? And then it's going to give a whole bunch of bullet points. God, with my eyes, uh, <laughs> and I, you I see, haven't whipped out the reading glasses yet. Mine are out. Probably could. Um, I see about ten, maybe fifteen bullet points there. MSPs would be wise to look at this, to look at these bullet. And you know why? Not only because customers might read this document and then start requesting it. Look, a lot of customers are not going to know this document exists. Okay. But nonetheless, they're good ideas, right? They're good ideas that MSP should think about putting into their quotes, into their description of services, because this is the stuff that manages expectations. Instead of the box that says, request the following from an MSP before signing a contract, that might as well have said, 
You want to manage your expectations and not get pissed off at your MSP? Make sure the following things are covered. That's really what they should be saying, right? And it says specific performance service level agreements. Yeah, right? Detailed guidelines for incident management. Okay, how would an incident management be ha- uh, incident be handled? Um, uh, statement from vendor on how data from different clients will be segmented or separated on the networks, or if it will be, right? This is important stuff that your clients might want to know about. So if they might want to know about, it's a reasonable question to ask. MSP should be answering these bullet points in their documents. So I think it behooves them to go through that and give serious thought to what the government is recommending customers ask and take proactive steps to address these things before your customers ask them. All right. I apologize. I just saw a question with somebody asking for us to put a link to the document, uh, Mm. which I will do in the show notes, but I'm going to go ahead and put it in the chat. Uh, because we actually do have some people that are uh, following along with us. So thank Good. you all for participating. So, John, there is your link uh, awesome. that will open up the PDF. And, again, we're talking about page nine. Yeah, and, uh, I'm on yeah, eight or nine, eight moving into nine. Okay, eight and nine, yes. Right. I'll so, tell you one other thing that I did notice here, and I sort of highlighted it, and I thought, oh, this is something that definitely, my goodness, this should be in there. I've been talking about it for years. Bullet point, transition plan to support a smooth integration of the MSP services. Yes. Transition plan to support a smooth integration. You could also add to that to support a smooth exit. All right. And in fact, we could probably put a period after the word plan, transition plan. Okay. Transition must be addressed in your documents. It must be. Everything ends. And as I tell my clients, usually not well. Right. Usually it's very rare for somebody to say, Brad, your your services that you're providing, these backup disaster recovery, these are wonderful. And the pricing, perfect. You're always there for us. We have never had a problem with you. We're leaving you. That's usually not how MSP's relationships end. Right. It's usually based on you're you're too expensive or you're not providing me the right service or I don't trust you in the way that you should. I'd like to. And so, All right. Transition services are going to happen, both incoming and outgoing. MSPs need to think about that. They need to think about that. And if you do not want to offer transition services unless you are paid for them, then by goodness sakes, yeah, put that in your document. Make it very clear, okay? Transition services are services. We're going to offer them to you if you are not in default of your agreement. If you agree to pay any amounts that we want to charge you for those services, and if we charge you some in advance, you have to pay that those monies in advance. I mean, set the groundwork for transition services to ensure a smooth integration or exit from your services, because that is one of the most hotly contested areas that MSPs face. Transition, mm. exit, bitter disputes over that really needs clarification. So I was very happy to see that they included that as a bullet point in this document. So that goes back to stuff that should be in our MSB, MSA and statement of work anyway, because the right. first thing I thought of is ransomware. So that topic that I thought we were going to talk about, where should we put that in our agreements? Well, one of the points on that was we always put in our contracts and our monthly service plans, you know, we're going to provide, you know, antivirus and backup services, blah, blah, blah. But we don't talk about what happens if you get a ransomware attack or if something happens. And then there's always that battle of, you know, an MSP has got to spend 20 hours, you know, cleaning up ransomware, restoring backups, rebuilding a machine or two or whatever. And then that, that, that big question comes up, do I charge for that or not? Yeah, that's a what-if scenario. That's a, 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 a situational reality that certainly needs to be addressed because you're right. It's not always a question or a, a, a matter of, oh, we're going to quarantine this virus and we'll delete it. And, you know, like uh, like a home user will do, just hit quarantine and delete and it's good. No, usually there is a question of uh, a forensic analysis to figure out how that virus got in, right? what kind of damage it did. So there's log file analysis. There's going to be backup recovery and the question of whether the backup is polluted as well, right? Corrupted, that's going to be an issue. And 
you know, then, of course, getting things up and running again, making sure the config files are all set up and so forth. Uh, that takes time. You're right. That's not a one or two hour project. That's a 30. That's a 50 hour project. Right. So what are you going to do? You're going to charge for it? I think you should. But I think that if you haven't brought that up in your documents, now you're going to spend 50 hours negotiating about how you're going to bill for those 50 hours. Right. So instead, I think that you have to make it very clear between monitoring and management and remediation. They're two very different things. And I think that uh, MSPs need to revisit their documents to see what they're promising as far as remediation, the costs, the timing, and by the way, the possibility of it. The possibility of it, right. because it very well might be, it can't be remediated. Yeah. That could happen. That's a reality that needs to be in the documents and pointed out to to your customers, for sure. Yeah. So I'm just sorry. I know I backtracked, but there was that whole idea of putting transition into the contract. Mm-hmm. You know, is there a charge for it? Because yeah. there is going to be some time allocated. And do you just, you know, if you're billing a month ahead, you know, does that pre-month account for, you know, the 30-day transition time that you're allowing to get off? Or if they decide to cut you off, you know, do you, you know, or if you have to work with the other IT provider and, you know, they not only need information, but they might need to be shown how to do something. It's going to be running in parallel, right? Running in parallel. You're, you're still, you're, you're ramping down as they're ramping up and those things should overlap in an ideal world for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we have another question from the good chat. Um, good question. So where do you stand on releasing information to a customer who leaves owing money? Hmm. Oh, you didn't, but there's more to it. Example, Example the case, the case in, in Georgia. Georgia. Okay. I know what case you're talking about. It was a few years ago. The case in Georgia was where an MSP provider refu- was um, – Uh, transitioning out a customer, the customer demanded its data, its passwords, and so forth. Without that, the customer was sort of dead in the water. The MSP did not provide it because he said, you owe us money, and we're not providing that to you until you pay us. And the MSP owner ended up getting arrested. Yes. True story. Okay. I actually tried to intervene in that. You did. Oh, I tried to. Oh, we got to talk because we talked about, we we talked about that on this show. And I was like, whatever happened to council, I reached out to council and never heard back. Okay. I said, let me jump in. I said, not only am I the MSP attorney here, I started the internet and computer crime division of the state attorney's office in Miami. I handled computer crime in the DA's office up in New York, New York. And it's like, (laughs) I can help you here. Never heard from anyway. All right. I think it worked out fine, but, but what's my position? All right. A few things about that one case. First of all, you should know that the MSP was fighting an uphill battle because if I remember the case correctly, off the top of my head, the customer in that case, I think was the chamber of commerce for the County. Yes. Right. Yes. it was. So it, it doesn't help. I mean, it's sort of like punching the sheriff's kid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, whereas m- normally the parents get together and say, apologize. You punch the sheriff's kid, you might end up in jail because it's the sheriff's kid. Well, here they sort of messed with the county. Okay. That was not a good thing right off the bat. That should have probably been a consideration, but moving to the larger issue of where do I stand about releasing info and so on if a customer leaves owing money? The relationship that an MSP has with its customer is a creature of contract. It does not arise from what we call common law. It does not arise by accident or coincidence. Oh, I happen to represent you now, Marvin. (laughs) How do you like that? It doesn't happen, right? It's a creature of contract. We enter into a contract. We say we're going to provide certain services. um, and, And for those services, we will get paid. That is our relationship. Okay, we're not going farther than that. We're not creating some sort of fiduciary relationship where we're taking on a bigger role than the contract says. Okay, so creature of contract, everyone agrees. I'm going to do A, you're going to pay us for A. When it comes to transition services, that should be part of the contract. Now, if your contract says we will not provide transition services if you owe us money, on undisputed invoices, let's be fair, okay. right? On undisputed invoices in good faith, you just haven't paid your bill. We will not provide you transition services. Now, if you leave it at that, 
That's like a C plus answer, maybe even a D. Why? Because what are transition services? I want my passwords back. I don't need you to transition. I just want my passwords back. Have I offered, have I, am I asking for transition services? Answer, I don't know. Who's paying me? I could argue it both ways, right? That's not the position you want to be in. You want to say in your document, we will not provide transition services if you owe us money on uh, on undisputed invoices. We agree that transition services includes, now at that point, lay it out, password retrieval, data retrieval, uh, you know, whatever it is, configuration uh, disclosure, right? Disclosure of configuration, whatever you want it to be. Now, unless there is some law like a HIPAA, or something like that, that says, look, you can't keep that information, right? You can't, you always follow the law clearly. But assuming that wasn't the case, and it wasn't the case in Georgia, if you are owed money, and then they say, well, give us our passwords, and you say no, what are they going to do? Sue you for what? What are they going to sue you for? Not hurting their business? You're not hurting their business. They signed a contract that said, pay the bill, or you don't get this. So they're suing you, because you are not playing along with them breaking their own contract, right? That's not, that. that's how you do it. I think that, so my position is releasing information to a customer who leaves owing money. If you haven't defined it in your contract, that's going to be a bitter dispute that you might, you might be better off just releasing the information and pursuing the money. But that's old school, new school listen to me, is you define transition services, you define it as retrieving passwords, you define it as retrieving files and config and cooperating with incoming vendors. That's a service. It requires you to move, use intellectual power. It's a service. And if they say, we will not ask for you or request that uh, to do that unless we paid you, that's how you protect yourself. That was not the case in Georgia. So you couple the case that you couple the fact that it wasn't in their contract with they were messing with the county. Yeah, that's what you get. Mm. But that's a unique situation that really most MSP should not find themselves in if they have the right MSA. All right. So there you have it, Chris. There's your answer. And uh, you saw me scribbling notes if you're watching the video here because uh, I know I have some stuff in there, but I don't think we've defined transition services quite as well as we should. So mm-hmm. Brad, we'll be talking about that later. I want to get to one last point here as we come to the top of the hour. And I mean, again, folks, this document is nine pages and all nine have stuff in here that you should pay attention to. Um, but one of the uh, bullet points that it says to request from an MSP before signing a contract documentation of MSP's financial health. That seems a bit much to me. Sure does, especially for privately held companies that don't disclose and have no obligation to disclose their, their financial health. So it's a, um, again, this is, I think the government's attempt to sweep broadly, right? You know, their um, goodness. I, I want to say red gorilla, Maybe there was many years ago, we're going back 15 years maybe or so, yeah. where there was an MSP that disappeared overnight. I don't remember the name. Okay, but that can happen. Like that <laughs> that, can right? be, that like happens that. all the time. Yeah, well, and it, you know, people woke up and the next day, they didn't have their data. They didn't have their support. They had nothing. And this MSP just disappeared. Why? Because they owed money everywhere, whatever it was. They went out of business. They shut down everything. And, you know, in the dead of night, they took their servers out and left. So I understand the need to avoid that situation. I get it. So, uh, you know, I think that it's probably not something that's going to be implemented. MSPs are generally not going to start disclosing their financial status and their financial health. And to me, unless you're a public company, uh, disclosing financial health to a privately held company is a snapshot in time. And that snapshot could change tomorrow. It's a privately held company, right? They could do whatever they want within the balance of the law, but there's a lot that can be done. They could disappear overnight anyway. So I think that instead of disclosing finances to show security and to show stability, instead, I think that you should, and this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Marvin, show your vendors, 
show the people you work with, maybe put up on your website and your marketing materials, some of the companies that use you, that rely on you, right? Yeah. So you can show depth of customer base, depth of vendor base, and that should give the security to the, to your incoming customers that you're not going to disappear overnight. You know, I think that that probably is far more valuable in any event than showing you, you know, what your tax returns were last year. <laughs> that, that means nothing. You right. know, I could have taken on a million dollars in debt after I, you know, filed my taxes. <laughs> what does that mean? I think that I'd rather see who are your customers, who are your vendors, right? Maybe put some endorsements up there and even offer the incoming customers the ability to talk to current customers. That's nice. That gives stability and a sense of, of, of confidence that is far better than a snapshot in time of your audited financials. Yeah, I, I like the idea of sharing uh, who I partner with, um, yeah. especially when you're talking about the large partners, you know, an HP or somebody where people are like, you know, well, well, who do you use? Well, that's who we right. use. Why do you use them? The reason I use them is because they're the number one, you know, computer manufacturer in the world. I can get their products, you know, just about any time I need, except for during right. COVID. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if anything were to happen, I've got a much larger company that can step in and support the equipment. So, of course. And if you're using well-known vendors in truth if somebody has to switch to a different service provider god forbid you dropped off the face of the earth you're using a well you know you're using a continuum like a say a, a connectwise a, a ninja it's, you know you're using vendors that other pro- providers could say yeah i'm well familiar with it our stuff integrates with that no problem you know that's the security that that customers are looking for well that and i like the fact that it doesn't pigeonhole them to think that they are stuck you know, right. where a lot of techs, you know, you know, they want the customer to be sticky. You know, you can't get the service anywhere else. Come yeah. on, like you mentioned, you know, there's a million MSPs. Come on. Um, and to be able to say, look, the stuff that I'm using, the next company that comes in should be able to step right in and use all the same vendors. Right. No hiding here. There's no, you know, you know, MB systems, proprietary stuff like you mentioned earlier. Right. Exactly right. All right. Well, we're coming up to the top of the hour. We could talk forever on this. Um, Again, folks, the document that we were talking about is the CISA Insights Risk Considerations for Managed Service Providers Customers, a nine-page document. Um, Let me get all my acronyms right here. (laughs) Provided by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency which is a part of the Department of Homeland Security. And this this was in conjunction with the National Risk Management Center. So pretty good document. Um, so I was going to ask you, you made a comment earlier that most customers will never see this. Should this be something that we show them? I think so. I think it's better educating. More education is better than less in all facets of life, including this. I think that... MSPs would probably show a, a gain a sense of credibility if they actually offered this to the customers and said, listen, we know that you're going to be looking around. We know we're not the only MSP on the block, but let's give you a resource that as you're evaluating us and everyone else, let's give you a resource that you should be looking at. And by the way, before you give them this resource, make sure that you comport with it, right? Make sure that you're doing things in accordance with it, right? And then give it to them. You know what they're going to do? They might actually read it and then look at what you're offering. And then when they do the dog and pony show and look for other providers, right, they'll see, oh, those guys didn't actually, they don't follow this checklist. But the MSP that gave me the checklist, they do. Right. right? Is this their checklist? Oh, no, it's from the government. Huh. That's pretty good. That's what I call marketing. There's free marketing advice. There we go. There you go. I think it should be given out. Yeah, for sure. Bradley Gross's marketing tips. That's on the, right. Marketing on the no number one on the no marketing Marv show. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. All right, folks. Well, I want to say thank you for those of you that were watching live, and for those of you listening at a later date, either watching the video or listening by audio. I want to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to the show. Again, you can find us most Wednesdays at eight p.m. Eastern on both YouTube and the Facebook, and of course, you can always head over to PodNutsPro.com and 
browse through the episodes there, click on it, video, listen on the link. Um, and of course, you can subscribe using your favorite podcatcher, Apple, Google, Spotify, all the favorite ones out there. And Bradley himself also has a podcast, the uh, Technology Bradcast. That's right, technologybradcast.com. And uh, I'll put the link in there for that, and you can get that. get wonderful nuggets from him. So, Brad, thank you very much for coming on and hanging out, and we'll end off the show here. And uh, any last words as we head out? No, that's it. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Marvin. You have a great show, and I can tell you that uh, a lot of clients, and, and we represent literally thousands of MSPs, and a good chunk of them say, heard you on Marvin's show, heard you on Podnuts. Really? So, really, congratulations on on the, 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 the market penetration that your show has. It's really commendable. You Sweet. do a great job. All right. Thank you very much for those kind sure. words, and uh, we'll see you again soon. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you very much again. That's going to do it. And until next time, holla.